For love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world, so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. This is God's word. Father, thank you so much for your love. As we dive into that topic tonight, I just thank you for it. and uh, We praise you for being who you are and being good and for loving us, though we don't deserve it. I ask that you'd Help me to be focused and stay on track, to speak clearly your word and not mine. Holy Spirit, we ask that you guide this time, center us so that we may be led by you and reveal to us uh, the greatness of God and who we are in light of that. Please open our minds and our hearts to your word. In your name, amen. First uh, John chapter 4, that's where we'll be at if you guys have Bibles. First John chapter 4, uh, we're going to look at verses 7 through 12. Um, which is a big section, and we're not going to cut through everything. I feel like we're just going to kind of skim the surface today, just skimming. First um, John is, is kind of broken up. It's interesting because as he's writing, what he'll do is he'll take an idea and then state it and then look at it from different angles and amplify it. And so uh, that created themes and sections throughout the book where, where John begins to do that. And we're walking into the last uh, theme, which is gospel. So from here on out till we are done, uh, that'll be kind of what is shaping and forming our understanding and, and where John is pushing uh, us to, to live in. And tonight within the theme of gospel is the concept of love, a very, very specific type of love or kind of love. And so we're going to explore that by looking at three things. Number one, what is this love? Number two, our example of love. And number three, a, our motivation of love. So what is the love? What is this specific type of love? What is our example of it? And what is our motivation to be loving? Uh, which I feel like is, that's a popular thing to do right now, right? To be a loving person. But I feel like I need a motivation most of the time. So we're going to look at that. Um, we'll start in verses 7 through 9. If you got it, say, I've got it. Beloved, Let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. Um, I listen to a lot of sermons. You guys, anybody else listen to a lot of sermons? Of course you do. You're great Christians. I was listening to a sermon, actually multiple sermons throughout my life have I heard this, but... Uh, I'll listen to a pastor, and he'll get up, and he'll be teaching on this passage and, and say, you know, we're really, we're confused about love. Uh, we're confused on the topic of love because we say we love tacos, and then we say we love our family. But you don't love your family like you love tacos. Those are different. We're so confused about love. Um, and that annoys me because it's dumb. Um, And I very much so disagree with him. I think the fact 
is that, that we can love tacos and love our families, and we don't have to eat our families, and we can love them differently. And, and the fact that we know that there's a nuance in there uh, makes, uh, makes, I think it means we understand love a little better than I think we do. I do agree, though, that there is confusion of what love actually means relationally or what it means to love others. I think if you were to walk through Tucson and just begin to ask people, what does it mean to love? You'd get answers all across the board. Answers from, well, to to love someone means you allow them to be whatever they want to be, allow them to do whatever they want to do. You support them, and and what they say is is good and wonderful and true, and you don't disagree. Uh, I think you get that spectrum, all the way to a very strict moral code of, of like programming and controlling people that's, uh, that's how you love, and, and, and everything in the middle. I think there isn't, I don't think Tucson has a transcendental definition of love. I think how that plays out in people's lives, they are all starting at different places, and, and so there needs to be some sort of code that we, we understand that love falls underneath. Um, and because love is so nuanced, the Greek language has a lot of different words for it, terms for love. Um, a specific word for brotherly love, phileo, uh, uh, another one for romantic, another one for just general. And, and then we have the word here in, verses, in these verses, uh, let us love one another. And, and that word is agape. It's a different type of word. Uh, how many of you guys have heard or read on, on agape? All right, that's what I figured. I was like, well, I'm not doing anything new. Um, agape is in general, goodwill or benevolence, uh, uh, specifically a willful delight in the object that you love. And it's different from other terms because it has a a high and lofty moral standard to it. It has strong character. So it's it's more of marked by a choice, a continuous choice over and over and over again. I I just want a tangent real quick. So I decided to Google, what does it mean to love? And uh, the first site that popped up, I don't know, I can't remember the name of it, but it had eight different ways that love is different than being in love. And uh, it was like, you can fall in and out of love any minute. And, and you could have a bad day or a bad argument. All of a sudden, you don't love this person anymore. But when you're in love, you feel good all the time. And I thought, that's dumb too. <laughs> Sorry, it just popped in my head. And I was like, that is so annoying. Um, but agape, agape love is a love based on a constant choosing rather than a feeling. And typically in commentaries, uh, what they would say is uh, agape love is something that only a Christian can experience, that you have to know Jesus, that you have to be connected to God. It is unique to God and the Christian church. And if you're not a follower of Jesus, you can't experience agape love. And and I would press on that because I think it's wrong, uh, but I also think it's right. And so we're, I just want to, we're just going to have a little nerd session on this word, uh, why I think it's wrong and then why I think it's right. Uh, John chapter 3, verse 19, so, so the Apostle John writes 1 John to the church of Ephesus, but then he wrote the Gospel of John or probably dictated it to someone as somebody wrote it for him. Um, and, and we see this constant theme of, of love throughout John, but in John three nineteen, Jesus says, and this is the judgment, the light has come into the world. And people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. And that word loved is agape. 
And so we can't say that this is unique to Christians because Jesus is saying, those who love darkness, they love with agape love. They are dedicated to it. This is a willful choice. This is what they've given themselves over to. And so they're dealing with non-Christians. As a matter of fact, we see it used outside of the New Testament and in other Greek writings, and, and it's not always used in the context of, of Christian and God. So I don't believe that we can make the claim that it is a Christian experience. But to argue with myself, um, if we press into the historical understanding of the word, I'm so sorry I'm doing this to you. Um, the word was primarily used in secular terms until the early church began penning scripture. This is so great. I love it. Um, the, the church fathers, the, the, the apostles, and, and throughout the epistles, what we see is that they look at agape, and then they just kind of hijack it um, and stole it from secular society, which is kind of cool. <laughs> They're just like, that's mine. That's what they did. And what happened is, as they were understanding and growing in and the nature of God's goodwill and his, his sacrificially loving nature, they were trying to put it into language, and they didn't really have an equivalent of such a high and lofty, loving, perfect nature, a nature where God the Father would send and sacrifice God the Son, and God the Son would willfully sacrifice himself to benefit those who hated him. And so they grabbed agape because it was the closest thing that that Greek had to it, and they exalted it even higher to explain this is the type of love that God has. It's even bigger than your benevolent choosing goodwill. It's perfected. And so in a sense then, everyone can experience agape as a benevolent love, but only followers of Jesus can experience it as revealed and understood in passages like 1 John. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. This is beyond a natural human experience. Okay, so nerd session done. Uh, the, reason, the reason why that's important is because of those two understandings of agape love have motivators behind them. So if we, we look back to First John, or back to John 3.19, says the people loved the darkness, and then it gives a qualifier why. Why did they love the darkness? Their works were evil. Essentially, they, their works were evil by, by nature. They're, they're sinful, and they hide in the darkness. They don't want to be brought into the light of God's holiness. They love to hide in the dark because they desire to do evil things. And so they are dedicated to the darkness based off of what they we're motivated by. First John 4, 7, John gives us the command to love, and then verse 7, he gives us the reason why, for love is from God. Verse 8, because God is love. Verse 11, because God loved us, we ought to love one another. And so if we're, if really, if we're going to study the word agape, we have to ask the question, what has shaped and formed your love? You love something. You love for a reason, for a purpose. You love concepts and you love people and you love world philosophies and thinking systems. Why? What is shaping your heart and, and what you long for? And what John is asking us to do is, is to look at our lives and then to look at what Christ has done, what God the Father has done, and to then live out of a different meaning of life, something else that forms our hearts. 
to allow our hearts and our love to be motivated not by what will be instantly satisfying or what makes the most practical sense or what will get me the, the most money or, or the most fame or just happy or get me a girl, but really to shape our lives and our loves to be, to be motivated by what we have experienced in the perfect sacrificial love of God. And then, because we've been loved that way, we love for the benefit of others, self-sacrificially. So we love because we were first loved. And so our, our motivator then is an experience we have with God, not necessarily an emotional experience, but to understand this is what he did and it changes me. So that's what agape is, a little bit of what agape is. There's much more, I feel like, but we'll stop there because sooner or later you're going to want to go home. Um, I want to see now if, if John gives us an example of love. Look at verses 9 through 10. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. John puts forward God the Father as the example. Isn't that interesting? That's not who I thought he would put forward. I mean, yes, Choosing God is always like the good thing, but generally the answer is the Jesus. Uh, that's who I would have put forward, right? Jesus is the one who became the God-man. Jesus is the one who, who, who became our propitiation. He's the one who died. He's, he's the one who served, and, and he, was, he was here, so, so that's who I would have put. But John doesn't do that. He puts down God the Father to, to view it from his eyes, the one who sent his only Son. So what in that example does John begin to bring out? And the first thing is, the first thing we can notice about God the Father, our example of, of perfect agape love toward others, is that it's, it's not abstract. Uh, God's love is not just a concept or an idea. It is actually worked out. God sent his only son. And that makes me struggle, kind of in, in two realms. It makes me struggle within culture, and then it makes me struggle with myself. And, and so in culture, uh, we live in a culture that, that says a phrase that drives me nuts, and it, it's, a bug just flew in my ear. Not that phrase. That phrase, well, that did drive me nuts. Uh, culture doesn't normally say that. Um, the culture says things like, sending you good thoughts. Uh, maybe it's therapeutic. I want to say there's something good about this. Um, sending you good thoughts. But if I'm driving down I-10 and my tire blows out and I don't have a spare and I call you, I'm like, I need a tire. And you're like, sending you good thoughts. I will find you. <laughs> that does nothing for me. Maybe, maybe it makes me feel good. People think about me. Uh, but that's... I'm on the side of the road with a broken truck. Like, help me out. Don't send me a thought. Do something. So I love this about agape and about God that he actually does something. I mean, what if God did that with humanity? Adam and Eve are like, we're naked. This is not good. God promised us death. And God looks at him and he's like, that death thing sounds bad. Send me your thoughts. 
So he, he's active. It engages. Agape love practically engages. Um, and so I, I think that, 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 that gives light to culture. Maybe, maybe our culture is, has removed ourselves so far that now we can believe that just thinking a thought for somebody actually helps. God's love is calling the church to engage practically. Uh, the, the, the way it makes me struggle in myself, though, is I read of this type of love that, that sends his only son, and, and then I read Romans chapter 5, verse 10. It says, while we were enemies of God, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son. And I can't tell you how many people throughout my life have told me, when you become a father, you will understand the love of God so much better. And then I became a father. And then I read a verse like that, and it made me realize I understand nothing. I don't get it. Uh, I, here's what I do know. I understand the love of God less than I think I did before I was a father. That's what I did find out, is that, like, I have no concept. I'm so confused. I mean, intellectually, I get it, right? God loves me so much that while I was an enemy of God, he sent his son. Get that. But do I actually understand that kind of love? I, I mean, let me put it this way. I love this church. I aspire to love everyone in this church and to love everyone well and, and serve and sacrifice and, and, and be the, the best pastor to my ability. But would I crucify my kids for you? No. I do not love you that much. I do not love this church that much. Would I do that for my enemy? Definitely not. Does that make me a bad Christian? Probably. I don't know. Maybe not. I don't have an answer. So when I, when I became a father, then I was like, God sent his kid to me, who is a terrible person, inside and out. And that, that love that was all driven by love, I'm willing to sacrifice the one I've had eternal perfect communion with for the ones who will reject and crucify and mock him. That is a love, an agape love, that I cannot wrap my mind around. I don't understand it. I want to, but my, it's, it's mind-boggling, and I think it's really good to sit in that strain, to live in that tension. How are you called? Because the command is, love one another, for love is from God. So we're called to have this same type of love. Where is that, and where is that not in your life? Where do you understand that, and where do you not understand that? Where do you refuse to give it? And we live in this tension. Man, God is love. God sent his son, love like God. And so John reminds us to bring us continuously to that tension that love is not abstract, but it actively chooses to engage in a sacrificial way. Our second example shows us, our second, our example shows us that love has a direction and a hope. Um, in this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. 
And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. God is not loving for self-fulfillment. He's not loving because he feels so loved. He's, his love's direction is outward. Um, his agape love for us is in his very nature. God is love and goes out toward us for our good, for our benefit, with the hope that we might find and experience love and have our sinful nature covered and appeased by Christ. Okay, that's a sentence, so that's important. But I'm just restating what the verse says. So I'm going to read this again. His agape love for us is in his very nature, God is love, and goes out toward us for our good, for our benefit, with the hope that we might find life, experience love, and have our sinful nature covered and appeased by Christ. God's love is completely selfless. Now, when I say that, I immediately want to push back. You probably do too. Because on the back end of that statement, I become a follower of Jesus, and then what do I do? I pray to God, I praise God, I, I sing to God. Like, that's got to be fulfilling, and nobody's ever done that for me. Don't. Um, <laughs> I've just, like, I don't like birthdays. I don't do that stuff. If you start singing me a song, I, I will sit there, but I will not enjoy it. Um, so we all do worship and praise, so there's got to be some type of self-fulfillment. But the fact is, is he was already perfectly fulfilled and satisfied apart from us. That is the beauty of the Trinity is that we don't benefit it. We don't add it. If God needed me, he couldn't be God. And so God, being perfectly satisfied and fulfilled, creates mankind out of love, out of creativity. Mankind sins, and God says, I will love you selflessly, and I'm going to send my son to ones who will reject. And, and man, hopefully, you will find life in him and light in him, and he will be the propitiation and satisfaction for your wayward heart. It does not add anything to God. God never had to provide any means back. Never had to do it because he just left you. Because he sent you a good thought. So the sacrificing of his son is so that we might find our satisfaction in him because we were created out of that relationship. And so the only way we're going to be satisfied is if, if he provides a means back to that relationship. And so ultimately one day in the new heaven and new earth, I will be perfectly satisfied. But it wasn't that he needed anything from me. So his agape love for us is in his very nature and goes out toward us for our good, for our benefit, with the hope that we might find life, experience love, and have our sinful nature covered and appeased by Christ. So there's two examples. God's, number one, God's love for us is not abstract, but engages and is practical. Number two, it has a direction and hope. And then lastly, our example is practical. Uh, how does Jesus then work that out for us? Like in the day-to-day. Because -day. I can say, well, love, the love of Christ was that he sacrificed himself on the cross and then defeated death. That's good. I'm not going to do that. So in my day-to-day -day life, in my relationships, how do I say, okay, I've got this concept of this perfect self-sacrificing love that benefits others, that, that isn't taking, how do I do that in Tucson, Arizona? How does that help me 
work out this in my life and relationships. And uh, let's go to John chapter 13. John 13. This is, was our adoration verse, and that's why I put it there. John 13, verses 34 through 35. John 13, 34 through 35. John 13, 34 through 35. If you got it, say, I've got it. A new commandment. So this is Jesus speaking. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. This is all agape. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Leviticus says, love your neighbor. Jesus comes out and says, this is a new commandment that you love one another. How's that new? It was already stated. Leviticus covered it. Man, you, it covered like lots of things. So how is this a new statement? And it's new because of the example of how Christ loves. This is a new commandment. Love as I have loved you. So Jesus gives us an example of how Christ, or how he loves one another. And we find it in the pages of John. And, and in just in this chapter alone, I'm reading through John in my devotions and it's taken me forever because um, it's just loaded with goodness. Uh, you have to say that about every book of the Bible if you're a pastor. Uh, but in this chapter alone, there's three glaring examples. Number one, surrounding this statement, uh, Jesus takes the role of the lowest servant and washes the disciples' feet. Uh, a while back, I had to be like months and months ago now, uh, Andy came up and he brought up the cleaning cart and... and uh, and he gave us a modern equivalent to washing our feet. We do this today. It's like a, like a cute church thing. Um, and where we get together in a men's and women's groups and we wash each other's feet. We're like, oh, this is so great. Man, their feet were disgusting. Like, you got cute, nice little non-stinky feet. Well, you probably have stinky feet. But it's not nearly as bad as walking around in dirty sandals where there's, where there's pee on the ground and animals going around. And, and so Andy brought up the, the, the toilet cleaning supplies. That's basically what Jesus did. Actually, I remember when I first became a youth pastor, uh, I walked in. I had no clue what I was doing. I was 19 years old. Don't hire a 19-year-old youth pastor. And I come in, and, and I'm like, okay, what do I do? And they made me sign all this paperwork and then handed me a toilet scrubber. And they're like, for the first year, you will clean the toilets after every service, every toilet in the building. And I was like, that's not fun. Uh, and it wasn't fun um, at all. But, man, it makes me understand this a little bit more. Jesus washes your dirty toilet. Love bends down to serve even to the lowest form of serving and does it joyfully because it's stemming from the love that they have for God. Number two, Jesus washes Judas's feet. Judas, who would betray him. Jesus shows us how to love our enemies. You serve your enemy. You care for the one who uses you. You sacrifice for the one who hates you. Love your enemies. I don't think that's, I think we say, yes, love your enemies. And then we're like, I need a gun. What does that say about your enemy? I'm not, not bagging on guns. Um, but maybe you should check your heart on that. Um, I don't think we love our enemies. I know I don't want to love my enemy. So that's a problem. 
Uh, and I can't tell you like how many times I've gotten frustrated with uh, uh, one of the employers that I have or, 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 or a boss somewhere. I'm just like, oh, I don't like that guy and I don't want to love him at all. And he's not really even my enemy. Like, do you really have an enemy, an arch nemesis? Do you? No, you don't. Um, you just have people that you find annoying. So love your annoying friend. Uh, number three, Jesus reveals that Peter, his, his example, Jesus reveals that Peter will deny him at the end of chapter 13. And Jesus still serves him and still loves him. Jesus serves the, the friend who flees and denies when things gets hard, when things get hard. Jesus loves the fair weather friend. And then forgives Peter when he comes back to Christ. Love the person who's not stable in your life, the person who will probably betray you, the person who will let you down. And the question is, if Jesus does these things, that's just one chapter, one chapter, and then says, love one another just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. Are you willing to love that way? Then I think we would assent to yes, and live out of no for the most part. So then the question comes, what is the motivation to do it? Why would I love that way? Turn back to 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4. Now, there's something that really bothered me when I was reading this in verses 7 and 8. Um, well, let's read 11 and 12 first. 1 John 4, 11 and 12. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. So why? I'm going to read you 7a and show you just an inconsistency that drove me nuts for like five hours. Uh, Beloved, let us love one another for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love, does not know God because God is love. So John makes a really hard statement. Like he draws a line in the sand. If you do not love, it's because you don't know God. You're not born of God. So you don't love. And then if you are born of God, you love. There's no like gray area in that, 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 that he's making at least. And so if the natural outwork of not knowing God is to not have this agape love, and then the natural outworking of being born of God and knowing God is that you do this agape love, why does he have to tell them to do it? Why tell, that's like me telling my, my baby to cry when she's bothered. Make sure you're going to cry and wake me up in the middle of the night. She's going to do it. I know she's going to do it. So, so why, if, if something just naturally happens, it's going to happen. If you're born of God, you will love that way. Why does John have to tell them to do it? And I think, one, it is the most natural way in working out of us having that agape love, right? Um, if God had promised a family, a mother, let's say a mom has a baby, and before she has that baby, God tells her, that baby is going to live for 100 years. And so the baby's born and everybody's excited, and the mom's not feeding the baby. The dad's like, hey, 
what you're doing or not doing. And she's like, well, I don't need to feed the baby because God promised he'd live 100 years. What's the dad going to say? He's going to keep the baby alive through you feeding the baby. Why would we assume that, that he's going to do it in the most unnatural way when he's provided the mother the ability to feed and keep that baby sustained and living? And so John is seeing this and saying, the way that you're going to have agape love is if you're constantly being reminded of it, if you're being told to do it, if you're being trained in it. And, and matter of fact, what he's showing us is that we're not just reminding ourselves in it, but this, this term is used 44 times in the book of John. 44 times. It's not a big book. And he's, he's telling us to, to, to wrap our lives around it. Do you know how much love has been given you and that you're to give that to others consistently and make that your life liturgy? liturgy. Make, make it your vernacular and what you read and what you understand. And so John is telling the people that naturally love that they need to love because he's saturating their lives in God's love. So reminding ourselves of love is given us. This is why and how we can, can love. My love because I was first loved. Uh, number two, verse 12 does something very odd. Uh, I'll read verse 11 through 12. It says, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Does that seem super out of place? It's like John was like, hmm, hey, by the way, no one ever saw God. I love tacos. Uh, so that set my mind on a confusing rant. But John chapter 1, verse 18 does the same thing. And so I wanted to check out uh, where, where John is pulling this from. So John chapter 1, verse 18 is, is where I ended up landing because he does the same thing here. For from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who's at the Father's side. He has made him known. So we have the exact same phrase in both. It's the first time that it's used in that book, and it's the only time it's used in, in the epistle of John. And, and the connection to it is no one has ever seen God, and then Christ comes, and he has made him known. And then John's reapplying it to us. No one has ever seen God. You're called to love like Christ's love, because as you love like Christ, you make God known. It is the primary means of evangelism. We now make God known through imitating the love of Christ. It's interesting because Jesus, when he says that they will know you by, by your love, there's no way that he's just talking about being nice, looking good and looking like we have it together or, or doing a missional thing once a month or whatever. But he's talking about a love that, when looked at, has to be supernatural because humans shouldn't love that way. You should not be that sacrificial. You should not be that caring, that, that, 
that outward focus? Why would you love your enemy? They're trying to hurt you. Why would you remain in relationship with a fair weather friend? You know he's going to abandon again. Why would you continue to do that? There's something supernatural about loving like Christ. And as you give that to the world, you reveal God. So we bathe our lives in it, verses seven and eight. Verse 12, we reveal God just as Christ did. Now we get to do that. And then there's this huge, beautiful hope because when I say these things, I know I'm gonna fail, <laughs> like real hard. Um, there's a high bar of love given. How am I going to do that? Verse 12, it says, if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. You're not called to do it alone. But God transforms your love and your heart as you saturate yourself in his love and he perfects your love and his love is perfected in you. This is the work of God in your life. It's interesting we have all sorts of weird Christian things we do, right? Like go to church every week. Gather together. Christians are weird. We're like one of the only groups who does this. You're gonna gather together with a bunch of people and then sit and listen to some guy you assume is the expert. I only have an associate's. Um, <laughs> and listen to me talk for a while and then we're all gonna stand together and sing a song facing the, the same direction. Some of us will do this. Most of, us, most of you won't. Uh, some will play chair drums. Um, and then we leave. And we do it every week. What other scenario would you ever do that in? It's an odd thing. But you miss a couple weeks. You're like, Ooh, kind of a bad Christian. What if you change your judgment of what a Christian is to what John is saying? Let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. When that becomes my bar, my life has to change drastically, but I realize, I don't know if I can, I cannot love like that. Like, I'm going to try, and I'm going to try really, really hard, but unless something supernatural happens in me, I have no, not a chance. So God says, I will abide in you, and his love will be perfected, or my love will be perfected in you. This is the work of God in us. So I want to take our time of silent confession and I just want you to ask God this very simple concept on a sermon, a sermon that we've probably all heard many times on agape. Do I do this? God, where, where am I struggling in this and, and, and with what people and what areas? Like, where do I fall short, God? Show that to me. Maybe you know right off the top of your head. And then ask him to perfect his love in you. And so I'm going to start us out, and then we'll have two minutes of silence for you to just pray and talk to God, and also to be in silence, because that doesn't happen often in our lives. Father, uh, I thank you so much for the book of First John, uh, and for, for this type of love that you've given us. And I feel as... I feel everybody here realizes that we fall short of that. 
So as we enter into our time of silence and confession, I ask that, Spirit, you would reveal to us what needs to be revealed. I help every one of us connect with you, God, in this moment and speak to us.